Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Today, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for January 23rd, 2022, the third Sunday after the Epiphany. If your pastor told you to feast, celebrate, and rejoice right now, because today is a day holy to the Lord, how would you respond? If one of your spiritual mentors insisted that this year, 2022, is the year of the Lord's favor, what would you say? I'll be honest, I would say, you've got to be kidding me. This year? This one? Today? Right now? How can that possibly be? I don't think I'd be alone in my skepticism. As I type these words, Omicron is overwhelming the planet. Hospitals are reaching capacity, physicians and nurses are exhausted, national and local economies are flailing, and COVID's death toll continues to rise. And this is before we mention any of the other challenges facing us. Wars and threats of wars, violence of all stripes, the catastrophic effects of climate change, the long shadow of racial injustice, alarming breakdowns in civility and basic kindness, rising epidemics of anxiety, depression, addiction, and despair. Who on earth would reasonably call our current moment holy or favored of God? I ask because our lectionary this week does exactly this. In two distinct stories of worship, two stories about people gathering to read, hear, and inwardly digest the word of God, we hear a call to attend to now. Both stories end with an invitation to recognize the sacredness of the present moment. Both stories insist that when we seek the divine, in worship, in the reading of scripture, in the intentional gathering of the beloved community, today shimmers with the presence, the blessing, and the favor of God. This is true regardless of circumstances, regardless of the trials we face, the sorrows we carry, and the pain we bear. Not because God's exultant today is dismissive of our hardships, but because God's presence infuses all things. God's joy the joy which is our strength, has within it the capacity to hold and honor our tears. The first story this week is from the book of Nehemiah, and it describes a tender and hard-won moment in Israel's history. If you need some context, Nehemiah is a minor figure in the court of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. When Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is a broken, fire-raised wreck, he begs the king to let him return to his homeland and rebuild the city of his ancestors. The obstacles to the rebuilding are fierce and numerous, but Nehemiah persists and finally succeeds in restoring Jerusalem's wall and gates. He then invites his people back from exile and asks them to gather in the square before the water gate for an assembly. Our lectionary picks up there at the moment when the prophet Isaiah opens the book in the sight of all people and reads from the law of Moses. He reads until the assembly of men, women, and children gathered in the square open their ears, stand up, raise their hands, worship with their faces to the ground, say, Amen, Amen, and weep. The story ends with Nehemiah and Ezra telling the people to dry their tears, return to their homes to eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and share the feast with those who are poor. Following an intense divine encounter, the people embrace the day and time they live in as holy to the Lord. I love this story because it offers us a beautiful and multifaceted picture of what can happen when we seek the presence of God together and allow that presence to infuse every part of our lives. Remember, the Israelites who gather at the water gate to hear the reading of the Torah are not people living in a happily ever after, 
all their trials and travails behind them. They are people newly returned from exile to a homeland that is still in ruins. Their traumas are fresh and their future is unclear. Their most recent memories are memories of loss, dislocation, oppression, and chaos. And yet something powerful and transformative happens among them when Ezra opens the book and reminds them of who they are in the long arc of God's story. What happens is not magic, neither is it manipulation. What happens is transformation. As the people consent to listen to God's word with their whole hearts, to receive what's read in a spirit of openness and vulnerability, and to express their comprehension as honestly as they can, everything changes. To be clear, the honesty they express includes sorrow, lament, and repentance. Ezra reads for hours, from early morning until midday, and in that time the people enter into a period of deep reflection and remembrance. I imagine that when the Israelites hear the sacred stories of their tradition, the stories of the Exodus, the stories of God's provision in the desert, the stories of their ancestors' failures and rebellions, they feel everything from nostalgia to elation to horror to happiness. They weep in gratitude over God's goodness. They weep in bewilderment over God's silence. They weep in regret over their own sins. They weep in mourning for all they've surrendered or lost. And they weep in relief that the exile is over and Jerusalem, raised though it is, is once again their home. God's word, living and active among them, holds all of this. It allows all of this and blesses all of this. When the time is right, God transforms the entire encounter into an experience of joy. The second story takes place centuries later in the backwater town of Nazareth. It's a Sabbath day soon after Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness. Filled with the power of the Spirit, Jesus returns to his hometown, enters the synagogue he has likely attended since boyhood, and stands up, as is the custom, to read from the prophets. He asks for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, unrolls it, finds the passage he wants, and reads aloud. By the time he's finished reading, every eye in the synagogue is fixed on him. Luke offers us this reading scene as the inaugural act of Jesus' ministry, an act in which Jesus proclaims his identity, his purpose, and his vocation. What I love about this scene is that Jesus chooses to reveal the meaning of his life and work through the well-beloved and well-known words of Scripture. Words his audience has heard a thousand times, words no doubt rich with communal memory and meaning, but also words in danger of losing their power through overfamiliarity. It's not as if the Son of God is incapable of penning a new and shiny mission statement. He is the incarnate Word himself. But he does not improvise. He opens the book and makes the old words of the tradition his own. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As if to say, the word lives here and now, today. It is organic, it breathes, it moves in fresh and revolutionary ways. The word of God is neither dull nor dead, it is alive. Of course, as we will see in next week's lectionary, the opening of the book does not always go smoothly for those bold enough to attempt it. Unlike the assembly that receives Ezra's reading with open hearts, Jesus' audience recoils in shock and outrage when he dares to suggest that the divine word is a word for their contemporary moment. They take offense at the fact that God's today is not a day to postpone and defer, not a cosmic fairy tale ending to expect in some fuzzy, indistinct future. Of course, what's surprising about this story is that the very people who need the freedom Jesus offers find his invitation of freedom intolerable. 
What offends them is not the ancient prophecy of their beloved ancestor. After all, Isaiah's words offer nothing but good news. No, what offends them is the suggestion that the good news is available right now. That the time for transformation, renewal, and metanoia is at hand. That they must change today. Lean into liberation today. Accept the joy of the Lord today. The time of the Lord's favor, luminous and rich, stands in front of them, embodied before their very eyes, if only they will dare to see it. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. As I contemplate these two stories, I realize how reluctant I am at times to embrace the holiness of today. Perhaps like some of you, I have spent the past two years living on hold, deferring and deflecting as if the days we live in right now don't quite count as real life. Real life will resume after the pandemic, I tell myself. Real life will resume when church services go back to being in person, when we can celebrate the Eucharist with bread and wine, when we put away our masks for good, when we get some sort of handle on climate change, police violence, teen depression, and sectarian violence. I wonder if I do this because I am like Ezra's listeners, full of pent-up grief, longing, regret, and lament that have nowhere to go. Maybe I assume that I can't lean into God's joy until all my sorrows are spent, or that worship can only be an articulation of happiness, not grief or anger or confusion or doubt. If so, can I remind myself that God's embrace is wide enough to hold all of human experience? Can I trust that divine abundance is possible now, even in the midst of uncertainty and pain? Can I say amen to God's word in the complicated circumstances I live in right now, today? Or perhaps our ambivalence around today has more to do with the deep-seated fear of change. Like Jesus' listeners, we long for liberation, but we want to control what that liberation looks like. We don't want to face someone who looks and sounds and loves and probes like Jesus. How dare he mess with our traditions, our boundaries, our well-established norms around how God works in the world. We'd rather put salvation off than confront its alarming presence in our lives right now. Perhaps we need to accept the possibility of holy discomfort. Perhaps the now of God means we have to stand up, shake the dust off, and move. What if the release of the captives and the healing of the blind require that we step out of our prison cells and open our eyes? It is one thing to scan the horizon of some day for the year of the Lord's favor. It is quite another to live boldly into that favor now. During this season of Epiphany, we are invited again and again to look for signs and glimpses of revelation, of light, of God's transformative presence. We are asked to hold intention, chronos time and kairos time, the linear, ordinary time we experience as human beings, and the sacred time of God's perpetual inbreaking. We are called to trust that even in the mundane, day-to-day of life on earth, God's now brims with the possibility of joy and feasting. This day is holy to the Lord. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. May it be so. For books this week, Brad Keister reviews Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages by Dan Jones. There are countless books covering the thousand-year span from the fall of Rome to the Protestant Reformation. A stated aim of Powers and Thrones is less to further scholarship and more to engage a 21st century reader. While not an original work of new scholarship, it is amply footnoted and builds on other published work. The author, Dan Jones, is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has also written books on related topics such as Crusaders in 2019 and the Templars in 2017. 
One clear message of Powers and Thrones is that this millennium of years hardly merged the Dark Ages label. Rather, it was a time of immense upheaval and transformation, leading to the world as we know it today, all the while exhibiting many of the issues we might think are unique to our time, such as climate change, pandemics, technological transformation, and its societal aftermath. The book has a historical arc, but it's organized by topics and themes, making it much more readable than a very long chronology of events. In the absence of a stable Roman Empire, whose stability eroded over centuries, Europe was racked by tribal, barbarian infighting, the rapid sweep of Islam across the continent and invasions from the east. Nations as we know them now did not exist. Instead, there was a delicate, evolving balance of power amongst local rulers, warriors, and the church. In its day, warfare technology led to the role of armored knights as protectors of a domain and the establishment of the Knights Templar, whose members took similar pious vows to that of monks. The church witnessed a rapid development of monasteries as many individuals saw these as a favorable alternative to poverty or armed service. At its peak, monasteries associated with the Abbot of Cluny numbered 1,500. Such abbots enjoyed influence with popes and kings. The intertwining of religion and politics, accommodating, adversarial, and sometimes violent, persists to this day. As European nations looked for trade routes to the east that avoided the Ottoman Empire, fully established in power with the overthrow of Constantinople in 1453, they stumbled upon the Americas instead. In an eerie parallel to modern social media, the development of printing in the 15th century enabled Martin Luther's theses, as the author states, to go viral a short half-century later, leading to societal upheaval and violent wars. The author concludes his fast-paced book, in spite of its length of close to 700 pages, with the question, Is it possible that we not only can be interested in, but may even sympathize with the people who lived through the topsy-turvy Middle Ages? I would say yes, and add, we can learn from them as well. The Sunday Times in the UK called Powers and Thrones simply the best popular history of the Middle Ages there is. For films this week, Dan reviews Brave Blue World. Our global water crisis is not merely imminent, it's here, it's now, and it's global. About a quarter of the world's population has no safe and reliable drinking water. In California, where I live, droughts and mandatory water restrictions have become common. In Flint, Michigan, lead has contaminated the municipal water supply. In many third world countries, children don't go to school because they must spend all day securing water for their families. But as this one-hour British documentary shows, many of these problems of sanitation, scarcity, contamination, and pollution are not necessary or inevitable. The major portion of this inspirational movie features about 20 visionaries and innovators all over the world who are pioneering new ways to manage water in agriculture, industry, villages, and private homes. Sometimes this calls for scaling up to big solutions, but more often than not, it requires scaling down to locally appropriate responses to particular conditions. In our brave blue world, we all have responsibilities and opportunities to make a difference. I watched this film on Netflix. And finally, for poetry this week, Epiphany by Reginald Heber. Brightest and best of the sons of the morning, dawn on our darkness and lend us thine aid. Star of the east, the horizon adorning, guide where our infant redeemer is laid. Cold on his cradle, the dewdrops are shining. Low lies his head with the beasts of the stall. Angels adore him in slumber reclining. 
maker and monarch and savior of all. Say, shall we yield him in costly devotion, odors of Edom and offerings divine, gems of the mountain and pearls of the ocean, myrrh from the forest or gold from the mine? Vainly we offer each ample oblation, vainly with gifts would his favor secure, richer by heart far is the heart's adoration, dearer to God are the prayers of the poor. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 23rd, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.